Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for July 16th, 2018. On today's episode, we'll talk about what we've been up to at the water cooler. This is Slash Film Editor-in-Chief Peter Serretta. Joining me on today's podcast is Managing Editor Jacob Paul. Hello, hello. Weekend Editor Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. Senior Writer Ben Pearson. Hey, what's going on? Writer Squatran Bowie. Hey, everyone. And Chris Evangelista. Hello. Okay, guys, we, we have a lot to cover here. There's, you know, it seems like all of us have been, you know, up to a lot of things this past week. Uh, you know, Comic-Con is this week, so it seems like we tried to cram in two weeks worth of stuff into one week. So I think we should just get into it. Uh, I'll start it off by saying uh, over this weekend I went to Disneyland again, yes, and uh, I rode the Incredicoaster at night. And uh, as I predicted, it is a much better experience at night. Uh, so if you are going planning going to Disneyland anytime soon and uh, experiencing the new Pixar Pier and the Incredicoaster, I would suggest trying to get a fast pass for the Incredicoaster sometime after you know 8 p.m. when it's uh, dark out and you can experience all the, the cool lights and, and fun of that. Uh, it was also interesting at Disneyland I had the first t- for the first time ever. Guys, by the way, we're celebrating a one-year anniversary of doing this podcast right now. By the way, hooray! Yeah, and, and for the first time ever, I had someone come up to me. I have people coming up to me quite often saying they read the site, but for the first time ever, I had someone come up to me saying that they listened to the podcast, and it seemed like they didn't even know about the site. So, <laughs> which, is, which is funny because they recognize me, so maybe they follow me on Twitter. I don't know. Anyways, uh, what else have I been up to? Oh, I. The last couple water coolers, I was talking about how hey, I I got AMC a list and I had not found a uh, chance to use it. This weekend, uh, me and my girlfriend Ketra got to use AMC a list twice, and uh, I wanted to share uh, my experiences with it uh, really briefly and my experience with AMC really briefly with you so far. Um, I saw Skyscraper on Thursday night. I'll talk about that a little later and what we've been watching. But um, it is worth noting because uh, A-List lets you see three movies a week, and it starts on Friday. So your, your three-movie selection starts on Friday and goes till Thursday. Interestingly enough, you know, all the movies, uh, when the big releases 
now that come out on Friday actually come out on Thursday night. So we saw Skyscraper on Thursday night. Uh, I thought for sure AMC would make it so that is one of my f- Friday uh, movies or one of my movies from the the next week. But no, it counted towards the previous week. So uh, if you are using A-List, that's uh, an interesting uh, thing. Uh, also, uh, I have noticed uh, so far that they don't check IDs as much as they should. They say, they say that, like... You know, they're supposed to check your name and make sure that it's your A-list account. I have not seen that to be the case. Maybe that's just uh, lazy AMC, uh, you know, theater employees. And um, I'm really enjoying – I've never had the Stubbs premieres. I know, uh, Brad, you've had it for quite some time. Uh, but I'm really enjoying uh, these premiere lines where you get to cut the entire line and go up and get your concessions. It's um, it almost feels bad. It feels almost like uh, you know, when you're at a theme park and you have like a fast pass and you skip like you know that two hour line. Uh, not that it's a two hour line at a concession stand, but uh, but I like it. Anyways, uh, the, the the other one thing I wanted to mention, I for the first time ever, uh, I went to an AMC dine-in theater. I went to Marina Del Rey, uh, to see. Sorry to bother you. I'll talk about that later. Um, and uh, Jacob, I know you often enjoy. The pleasures of the Alamo Draft House. Uh, this is AMC's version of that, where you can order food at your food and drinks at your seat. You know, drink beer and alcohol while you're watching the movie. Uh, I've been to the Alamo Draft House, you know, numerous times. I love the Alamo Draft House, uh, so I was interested to see how AMC handles this, and uh, I would say it's uh, good and bad. Uh, the good is they have those recliners that they you know see in like these AMC Prime and Dolby Cinema theaters in the AMC installations. Uh, the bad of it is, um, and that's much better seating than I think most Alamo Drafthouse theaters have. Um, the bad of it is uh, Alamo Drafthouse have like these, I guess uh, I'm not sure what you'd call it trenches where the wait staff walk so that when the movie is playing uh they are not like distracting you from the movie because they're kind of like their head is at the you know the level of the table in front of you yeah i guess to uh, further explain what peter is saying each row of the draft house has a lower level in front of it where the team members or servers are walking a good two feet below you with their heads down so even though they're serving you they are never in the way, and that's kind of important to understand. What I think the point Peter's about to make. So there you go, Peter. <laughs> yes, thank you, thank you for clarifying. Uh, the AMC dining theaters do not have that. So throughout the movie, uh, you know, P- the team members come and are walking at the same level as you in front of you, and it is uh, a little bit more distracting. Not not enough that I wouldn't see movies at an AMC dining. Uh, oh, one of the other positives uh, at. The Alamo Draft House, you put like a piece of paper, you write down your order on a piece of paper and you put it in front of you and then team members check in from time to time to see if there's anybody with a piece of paper sticking out in front of them. Um, you know, that I've had times at the Alamo Draft House when it's been, uh, you know, more busy where, you know, it's gone like 30 minutes before someone notices I put an order up. Uh, so that's a negative, I guess, for the Alamo Draft House. For the AMC Dine-In, each seat has a button that you can press and basically it calls a server over to you like you know almost like uh i guess uh, flight attendants 
you know, on a, on a uh, plane, uh, you know, calls them over to you, uh, you know, within, you know, a couple minutes to, you know, take your order or, or whatever. Anyways, it, it, it was a fun experience. Uh, I would much prefer the Elmo Draft House. I'm still excited for them possibly, you know, eventually coming to L.A. They're supposed to be coming to downtown L.A. What, uh? next year i don't even know at this point it's been like delayed years uh but that was my weekend ben what have you been up to uh last week i had a chance to go to the writers guild of america theater in uh, beverly hills and see blind spotting again as part of the film independent member screenings uh series i guess is what they call it um film independent is like a nonprofit company that produces the LA Film Festival and the Independent Spirit Awards every year. And they always put on really fantastic um, screening sessions. And they all they also do um, like Jason Reitman's live read uh, sessions that you guys may have heard about. We've written about a bunch of them here at Slash Film. So um, anyway, Film Independent is just a, a great organization. But they they put together the screening of Blind Spotting, And I wanted to take my wife because I saw the film at Sundance and she hadn't seen it yet. It comes out later this month, I think. Uh, what's the release date? July 26th, I think. Uh, I'll double check that before we finish just to make sure that's right. But um, man, this movie is so great. And I know that that Jacob has seen it. And I've already talked a little bit about it on my like favorite movies of the year Um episode that we did uh, a week or so ago so i don't want to go too much into it but uh, davi diggs and rafael casal the co-writers and leads of the movie were there and they did a q a afterwards i was hoping to sort of write an article about some interesting stuff that they talked about during the q a but it was mostly just like a pretty standard um recap of like how they made the movie and and there weren't too many interesting details from it but still i mean it's a it was a great uh experience seeing that movie in the theater again and i highly recommend anybody check this movie out um jacob do you uh do you agree did you enjoy blind spotting as much as i did yeah and i was going to ask you this because when i saw blind spotting i really liked it but in the weeks and months afterward it grew in my mind to the point where I think it's even better than I thought it was. So on a second viewing, did it get better for you? It's so much better on a second viewing. Yeah. Um, Because I I think it's just like the movie is very unique in the way that it's presented. It's, it's very much like an indie movie um, in its presentation, but it also has like these cool stylistic flourishes uh, throughout. And once you sort of get on the movie's wavelength and understand exactly where it is. And, and when you go into it a second time, you know, you know, what's going to happen and how, uh, all of it is going to play out. And you, you're able to sort of notice how those flourishes are uh, s- strategically placed throughout the movie. So it, it builds to this ultimate climax that is really unlike anything that I've seen before. So, um, yeah, I would I would definitely recommend uh, blind spotting and yeah, see it twice if you can. <laughs> yeah. And uh, do a double feature with Sorry to Bother You. And then when that comes out later this year, see, see it with Bodied because those three movies are all about the same thing in different ways. And I think we're going to have a big conversation about what those three movies are saying about America in 2018. And I, I can't wait for everybody to be able to see all of them because it's going to be a real a real interesting cultural moment for uh, film fans. Yes. Yeah, for sure. And just to clarify, um, it comes out in limited release on July 20th, and I think it's going to be expanding to more theaters after that. Yeah, I'm waiting for it to hit my AMC theater so I can use the A-list. Oh, one last thing I wanted to, uh, to go back to A-list really quick because there was one other point I wanted to to relay to you guys. Uh, one negative um, I've found with A-list is um, when you book in the app, you can reserve your seats ahead of time, right? So that's like one of the positives of A-list. But say you're going to the movies with your significant other, they still need to like be in the app at the same time as you 
to like get the seat next to you at the same time so that like you know you're sitting together there's no way to like link up accounts so uh i'm sure that'll be some kind of feature they'll add eventually but uh that's negative anyways uh let's move on to jacob who has been indulging in the criterion collection sale uh, yeah, like so many uh, movie nerds, I, I buy my fair share of Criterion Collection Blu-rays throughout the year uh, for titles that I need to own right then and there. Uh, but I tend to um, set aside some money for whenever Barnes & Noble has their half-off sale so I can stock up on lots and lots of discs. And I've been So half-off uh, is like the normal price of a DVD, right? <laughs> yeah, you, you usually pay uh, premium for a Criterion Collection disc. And normally I don't mind doing it because Criterion does incredible work for incredible movies that often... Uh, are flying under the radar, won't get released by uh, other uh, companies. Uh, and I think that uh, this uh, sale, I got a good mixture of the obvious ones and the uh, not-so-obvious ones. So to look at the list of the movies I bought, uh, kind of here and there by visiting various Barnes & Nobles over the past uh, week and a half, I got uh, Election, Silence of the Lambs, Midnight Cowboy, The Lure, Being There, Ghost World, Twin Peaks, Firewalk With Me, and Straw Dogs. It's a really good mixture of modern um, and older classic films, contemporary and classic. Um, and the one I'm actually uh, most excited to um, recommend to people right now uh, is The Lore, which is a uh, a European mermaid horror musical. I saw Fantastic Fest a few years ago, and I think that's going to have a really good life and criterion when people start discovering it. It's really wild, and it's just totally out there. It's kind of a movie where, like, Election, for example, Sons of the Lambs are great movies. I'm glad they're on Criterion because they deserve to be a part of this uh, prestigious collection. But um, I, I think that everybody who buys Sons of the Lambs is essentially paying uh, for Criterion to release movies like The Lore, which are really lurking in the shadows and underseen and deserve the platform uh, to say, like, hey, this is something that is being put alongside these Oscar-winning or cult classic movies, and you should check it out. So I'm really, really happy to see that in the collection, really happy to own it. I'm actually surprised to hear that Election has a Criterion disc. This shows how, you know, out of touch with physical media I am because that's one of my favorite movies of all time. I might have to pick that up because uh, another thing Criterion brings to the table that uh, we're losing at other studios is special features. Like, that, we're getting less and less special features, and Criterion is one of the distributors uh, along with um, Chris. What is the other one that uh, you often... Talk shout about factory shout, yeah show factory that is still kind of doubling down on special features um jacob what else have you been up to oh i've been dealing with a uh real uh shithead of a cat <laughs> um <laughs> i've talked in the past about uh, adopting fitz my second siamese cat and i i love him to death but when i first adopted him he was very nervous he was he liked to hide he would always come out and cuddle when like he felt really safe but in the weeks since I first got him, he's gotten very brazen. He's gotten used to how he's gotten used to the other animals. He knows all the shortcuts. And he's such a sweetheart. He loves cuddling. He loves sitting on the lap for hours. But that means he's also gotten to the point where he thinks he's the boss. He likes to knock things over. He likes to um, grab earbuds and drag them under the couch and hide them there, which he's done several times. Um, if it dangles, if it's not nailed down, he will find a way to knock it over. And it's actually really funny from a distance. Like, recounting it now, it's really adorable. But in the moment, it's... I want a strangled cat, but he's uh, he's a real pistol. Um, and I, I love him, love him to death, and I, I I'm really I don't regret uh, adopting this cat. But oh man, he's driving me crazy. <laughs> that is uh, that is funny. It's been a while since I've had a cat. Uh, you know, it, it's like that saying. Um, you know, dogs worship you as if you were God, and cats 
uh, act as if you should worship them because they are gods. Yeah, and Siamese cats uh, come from, they were originally bred uh, to be uh, cats owned by royalty in Southeast Asia. Uh, so I think that still is somehow in their DNA. They know their royalty. <laughs> okay, let's move on to Chris. Chris, uh, you've been traveling recently. Uh, yes, I, I flew to Montreal, the beautiful city of Montreal, for a set visit. I can't tell you uh, what it is because it's embargoed, but it was very cool. It was one of the coolest uh, things I've ever done in my life. That said, I had to fly there, and I really don't like flying. In fact, I am terrified of flying. So it was it was, uh, it was was both good and bad. You know, the, the trip itself, being there was great, but flying... Um, yeah, how is, how is Montreal outside of the set visit that you can't talk about? It was nice. I mean, I didn't get to see a lot of it because I was busy, but what I saw of it was very nice. But uh, again, I had to fly, and that wasn't fun. You know, <laughs> um, I know, I know there are people who fly, like, constantly for their jobs. They have no problem with it. My wife flies a lot. She has no problem with it. You know, she says, you know, it's it's the chances of being in a plane crash are so statistically uh, improbable. But my reply to that is, you know, everything is statistically improbable until it happens to you. I'm sure plenty of people who have been in plane crashes have been sitting in their seats. By that logic, you could like walk outside your house and be hit by a flying car or something. I know. That's that's why I very rarely leave my house. um, Like, you know, I'm sure plenty of people have been on planes and have been like, ah, it's statistically very improbable. I'll die. And then the plane crashes and all their bones explode. So I, uh, Uh, you know again i i know it's an irrational fear i know the chances like you're you're more likely to be elected president of the united states than you are to die in a plane crash but (laughs) even though i know this knowledge i still i get on the plane and i wait wait wait, that that statistic can't be true (laughs) no it is it absolutely is true i've looked this up you're more likely to win a presidential election than to die in a plane crash and still I get on the plane and I, I quiver like a small infant with polio. But uh, that's so, just the way I am. I uh, One day I'll get over it maybe, but for now it's uh, it's traumatizing. So it's all the fear. It has nothing to do with the comfort level of being in a plane? No, I don't care about the comfort. And it's not even about like dying because, man, let me tell you, I wake up some days and I'm like, oh, this again. <laughs> but it's just... <laughs> It's just the it's the I think it's like the lack of of control. Like I'm not in control of the plane. So, you know, if it's going down, I can't do anything about it. Like, you know, my wife says, you know, car crashes are more likely. But in my mind, I'm driving the car. I can control the car. I'm not driving the plane, you know, so, you know, anything can happen. But again, it's irrational. I understand but I'm I'm insane. So Chris, you gotta I, you gotta start working on your campaign right now. Evangelista for president, 2020. <laughs> uh, this again. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I hate to keep on harping on this, but um, Chris, what do you do on a plane? Do you watch movies on the seat in front of you? Do you read? Like, what, what, what kind of? Or do you just sit there? Like I, I sit the entire. I sit, well, this time I, I tried listening to um, some stand up. It didn't help. Uh, <laughs> I tried reading last time. It didn't help. So usually what I do is I sit there. I stare straight ahead and I grip the armrests and I mumble to myself. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. <laughs> over and over again. Uh, and, you know, event, you know, I, this I, was I, a I, I am, must love it. Yeah, I was going to say, I imagine like a little kid sitting next to Chris in like the middle seat being like, Mama, what's that man saying? To well, himself? 
Yeah, it, it's it's kind of embarrassing because on the flight home, there was a kid a few froze ahead of me and uh, she was having the time of her life. She's no fear at all. And I'm just sitting there grinding my teeth, counting down the minutes. It was a short flight, too. It was like an hour and 10 minutes. But I felt every minute of that of that time. And you're going to be traveling to San Diego to be at Comic-Con with us. That's a long flight. It is. I'm I'm not looking forward to it. I actually went to the doctor today and said, please give me the strongest <laughs> drugs you have because I'm about to be on a very long flight. And if I don't have these drugs, I'm going to cause a scene. <laughs> and Chris, as somebody whose doctor has them on, on Valium uh, for uh, a number of reasons, for all kinds of disasters, anxiety situations. I wish I could teleport some Valium to you right now. I feel so bad. Well, it doesn't help because I actually took Valium on this last flight and it did nothing. I am no. doomed. Yes, Chris, what's doomed. wrong with your brain? Uh, it's sick. It's a sickly brain. And I'd <laughs> Have like you to tried it playing like puddles, puddles or something? When I was young, I used to like playing puddles or board games that would help me sort of relax. So I don't know if that would be a, a nice <laughs> tactic for you. I tried playing a game on my phone and it didn't. Look, nothing's going to help me is what I'm saying. <laughs> I'm a lost cause. If you have any suggestions for Chris, send them to Peter at SlashFilm.com and we'll re- relay them to uh, to him. Brad, what have you been up to over the weekend? Uh, well, it is summer, so it is fair season all over the place. So uh, my area just had their county fair. So I went out there for a couple of days to have some really unhealthy food. And uh, my sister, who had just graduated high school, uh, she shows draft horses for somebody who um, trains horses in the area. And so she was there the whole week. And uh, my parents and I saw her uh, do her competitions for that um, a few times this week. So, yeah, you know, it's, um, it's one of those things where I like going to it just because, like, there's the unique terribly unhealthy food that's there um but then it's also a mix because it kind of brings out some of the worst people that live in my area because they come up because we come on they're just like woohoo the fair let's go and wear our confederate flags and bullshit um so it's yeah it's 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 a mixed bag of i like this but also i hate so many of you (laughs) <laughs> um, I'm actually excited to go to the, the county fair around here. We have an OC and uh, LA county fair. Um, what do these people with these? Uh, I assume the county fairs all happen around the U.S. during the summer. What what do these people do that work at these county fairs? Not to, when the county fair season is not going on. Any idea? I, I mean, it's a good question. I'm sure that there's probably areas where the seasons don't change drastically, where like they can do carnivals and other festivals and things like that with the rides and whatnot um but they also just might make enough money during fair season by hopping around to different fairs that they don't have to worry about it you know i feel like that's a, a missed opportunity for a movie i would like to see a movie about like kind of the carny life of living on the you know the traveling county fair circuit i think that could be uh, fun anyways uh what else have you been doing brad uh, so my mom's birthday was last week, and uh, she decided that she wanted to go check out this concert um, that's called The Purple Madness, which is a Prince um, impersonator, basically, like a whole band of this guy who puts on a show and performs Prince's songs and everything. And that it's a pretty tall order, because Prince is a legend, and uh, not many people can do what he does as far as his talents, uh, both you know instrumentally and vocally. Um, but they were they were pretty good, you know, for as far as Prince, Prince impersonation bands go. You know, it was 
they played all the hits, obviously. Um, it was, you know, it was in- enjoyable. It started a bit late because I guess the venue venue's power was out for part of the time. And I think that might have created some problems for the band because I'm not sure that they got to do the, their sound check as thoroughly as they would have liked to because a couple times there were some feedback issues. Um, but it was it was an enjoyable time, you know. It was it wasn't anything mind blowing where I was like, oh my god, this guy's like Prince incarnate. But it was you know it was fun for what it was for being you know, a, a show that was in the area. For sure, and and, then, and you've also been sick. Yeah, I uh, on the way back from that concert, funnily enough, I all of a sudden just got like the worst chills. Like felt like I had just come in from like sledding from being outside all day, uh, and I just felt terrible. And then. All of a sudden, overnight, it was the complete opposite, where my body was, like, warmed up like crazy. I didn't even have a thermometer at the time, so I don't even know what my temperature was, but I know that it was high. And I thought that maybe it was just, like, a, either food poisoning or the stomach bug, but then I, I realized that after all the crazy body temperature fluctuation and just general discomfort, that my throat was actually hurting quite a bit when I swallowed the next morning. And I realized that I thought that I might have strep throat. Sure enough, I do. I did. Uh test was positive and but i've been taking antibiotics for a few days so now i'm not contagious and now i'm not uh dying and exhausted and passing out on my bed for hours of the day uh so i'm ready to go for comic-con uh and glad that i don't have stupid strip throat anymore well i i, I hope you uh rest in the next couple days leading up to comic-con uh, oh i because... doubt i will because comic-con's gonna be insane <laughs> <laughs> it's a leading up to comic-con brad leading up to comic-con because yeah yes comic-con's gonna be insane and uh hopefully you don't uh doesn't make it worse but uh let's move on to what we've been reading uh chris what have you been reading uh i got an advanced copy of a book by ian nathan called anything you can imagine peter jackson jackson in the making of middle earth and it's all about uh, you know the road to bring the lord of the rings to the big screen um i just started it so i'm not I don't have too much insight into it yet, but it, so far it's, it's pretty riveting. Um, I learned that uh, in the seventies, John Borman, who uh, directed Excalibur wrote a screenplay for a Lord of the Rings movie. And it was just loaded with sex. And I wish they had made that just this weird orgy filled Lord of the Rings movie. But so, so obviously it, it was the George RR R. Martin HBO version. I guess so. But uh, it's just, it's loaded with all these sexual situations that obviously are not in the book and in the Peter Jackson film. And, you know, even though I love the Peter Jackson take, a part of me wishes this very strange John Borman film had gotten made. But um, so far, it's very good. I'm looking forward to finishing it. This is interesting because I feel like, I, you know, I love finding out the making of films, but like that movie or those movies have so many supplemental making of docs and video diaries. And I feel like I spent years on set of that movie in New Zealand, even though I've never been to New Zealand. So I'm not sure I personally would want to read a book about the making of it or if I would gain anything. Like, are, do you feel like you're gaining anything that you didn't from all those like uh, Blu-ray and DVD special features? I do, because it, it's not just about the making of Peter Jackson's film. It's about, you know, how other people tried to make it before him and, you know, all the stuff that went on behind the scenes before he even got to make it. So, so far, I am learning some new stuff. Jacob, you've also been reading. Yeah, uh, I've, I've been reading any fiction or even nonfiction. Uh, interestingly, I've been reading uh, a book about how to be a better game master on RPG tabletop games. 
It's uh, called the Cobalt Guide to Game Mastering, and it's a collection of essays from uh, celebrated uh, RPG writers and designers and game masters about how to run a better game. And that's everything from how to read the table and see how your players are feeling, uh, how to make your players feel better about themselves and their characters, how to make a more inclusive game, how to uh, better improvise when all your plans go off the rails because the characters decide to go in a different direction. And as someone who really does love uh, running RPG games, it's been really illuminating and really helpful. And it's just... um, it's one of those things where, like, I'm not going to recommend it to anybody who's like who wants some casual light reading and aren't RPG gamers. But if you are the kind of person who wants to run a game, whether it's Dungeons and Dragons or something more intense or lighter fare, I'm finding it extremely useful, even when stuff that I feel like I inherently already knew, having it written out by somebody who can uh, illuminate it better is proving very helpful. Yeah, I'm, I'm not a big role play, uh, playing gamer, but I have noticed from the couple times that I have kind of do uh, you know tried to do dungeons and dragons and stuff that uh the quality of a game master is really important in your enjoyment of that whole experience and how good of a storyteller and how you know good they are on their feet uh with the situation and not just having you know a plan that they had planned out you know you you, you have to be able to like improv uh, a bit there um anyways let's uh let's move on to what we've been watching uh, I saw a lot of things this week. I, I saw two movies uh, that Ben also saw, so I wanted to bring Ben into this. Uh, we both saw a press screening for Mission Impossible Fallout in IMAX. Uh, Paramount invited us to the IMAX theater in Century City, uh, which meant that we couldn't even bring in a guest, which is very unusual for a press screening. Anyways, uh, it was awesome. It was. Uh, I'm not sure it's my favorite. I still, still think three or four uh, you know, Ghost Protocol or Mission Impossible Three are uh, like up there more. Uh, but from a pure action, uh, you know, tentpole action sequences side of things, it was probably more intense than any of them. It, like it's just from a filmmaking standpoint, it's it's amazing. Uh, from uh, I, I do think, uh, you know, we don't want to get into any spoilers because this movie isn't out yet. Uh, but I do think there are some leaps of logic, uh, especially, in, uh, you know, in the villain side of things, I feel like, uh, or even leaps of logic, even compared to, you know, the last couple movies where, you know, yeah. Anyways, uh, Ben, <laughs> what did you think? I love this movie so much. It's everything that that you want. If you're looking forward to this movie, uh, just get your hype meter even higher than it already is because this movie lives up to it. I was very, very much looking forward to this film and it, it did not disappoint in any way. I think the action, as Peter's mentioning, I think it has like maybe the best action of the entire series. Like the the climax of this movie is it's unreal. The stuff that Chris McQuarrie was able to do. And, and just like as somebody who follows McQuarrie on Twitter and sees that he's constantly giving out writing information and and tips, you know, for up and coming and aspiring writers. It was really cool to see this movie and see all of his pieces of advice actually be incorporated into his own movie. Um, He talks a lot about, um, you know, it's a simple, I think one of his quotes is, it's as simple as giving the audience exactly what they want in a way that they've never seen it before. 
and he just uh, this entire movie is just like the it's it's emblematic of that uh, mentality all the way through and I, I can't wait to talk to you guys about it once it actually comes out and everybody gets a chance to see it but yeah this movie is incredible yeah and I don't, I don't want it to sound like I'm down on this movie this movie destroyed my expectations this is the best movie I have seen this summer um, maybe even this year honestly it, it, it's it's a it just just a blast I can't wait to see it again in theaters um another movie i saw i saw over the weekend with my a-list and that is skyscraper uh starring dwayne the rock johnson i was actually excited to see this um because you know i love the rock and uh, i like silly action blockbuster movies like this um however i was very disappointed by this movie uh, it had a great setup but um, the further you got into the movie, the more convoluted it got, the more laughable it got. Um, there's like, uh, I don't know, on the top of the skyscraper, it's the largest skyscraper in the world. The guy that built it, like, built his own, like, danger room from, like, the X-Men series. <laughs> like, it, it, it doesn't even make any sense. Like, the further you get into this movie, it's just like, what is going on here? And it's not, like, so bad it's good. It's kind of just bad at points. Uh, there's so much potential. I I never felt... I guess the big problem is in the climactic tentpole moments where Dwayne the Rock Johnson is, you know... Uh, you know, this isn't a spoiler because in all the marketing, him jumping off the crane to the, you know, the this large skyscraper, uh, it never... It never reaches the level of like, you know, we were talking about Mission Impossible, Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol while uh, Tom Cruise is hanging off uh, that building in Dubai. Uh, like all those scenes are riveting. And I think it's because it feels real, even though, you know, it could have been on a green screen. This movie, every single thing feels like it's created in a computer and it feels like on a green screen. So I never felt any real, um, you know, stakes or like it just didn't feel real like ben i know you enjoyed this a bit more than me so tell me how i'm wrong yeah no i i enjoyed this movie for what it was i thought it did pretty much exactly what it set out to do so i find it hard to sort of fault the movie for that Uh, and because uh yes there's definitely a distinct difference between mission impossible which all those stunts were actually real and really taking place on the side of the building and skyscraper where all of it is CGI. But I think, you know, even knowing that, I, for me, all of those scenes where he's jumping and hanging outside of the building and all that, all of that stuff really worked for me. I think those were some of the best moments in the movie. Um, there's also a really good fight scene, like a hand-to-hand fight scene in the beginning of the film that sort of exceeded my expectations. Yes, the dialogue is a little uh, <laughs> a little wonky. Some of the characters are, are very clearly... Um, You know, the second you're introduced to one character, you're like, oh, yeah, this is definitely going to be a bad guy. And, of course, you know, that kind of thing happens. But, like, that's And the guy will die in the same way that you saw guys die in other movies that this is obviously based on. Right, right, right. Yeah, it's it's very by the numbers. But I was sort of like uh, my wife and I were talking about it after we saw it. And she didn't really like it that much either. But I was sort of comparing it a little bit to set it up, the Netflix uh, romantic comedy, in that it, it doesn't do anything groundbreaking or new but it it, to me it was all about like execution and i I feel like the execution of this movie was pretty good for what it uh, you know for for the type of story that it was trying to tell i feel like it it told it pretty well so i don't know take that as you will i I realize it's it's no mission impossible on it by any stretch of the imagination but i think if you're going in looking for just like a goofy good time i I think it it gave it to me even if it didn't give it to peter it it, 
I do want to say one last thing about this movie. Um, you know, if you're going to make a movie about this towering inferno of a building, they had to give it like some kind of mystery element of why why this is happening to this building. And when you find out what that is, and I'm not going to spoil it here, it feels so very convoluted that that's the way these bad guys would have to go about doing or accomplishing what they're trying to accomplish. I don't know. Anyways, uh, I, I, I'm going to move <laughs> on. Uh, what else have I watched? Uh, oh, I saw Sorry to Bother You because, uh, you know, it was on all of your top ten lists of the year thus far, so I had to see it. And it was finally playing at AMC Theater so I could use my A-list. Uh, I uh, very much agree this is, uh, you know, the dawn of a new voice in cinema. I, I, I am excited to see... Uh, what Boots Riley does uh, in the future. I, I, I like this. I, I don't think I'm as high on this as I think you guys were. Uh, I think if I saw this at Sundance, it probably would have blown me. It would have uh, struck me as uh, you know, it struck me higher. I, I do think like the best way to describe this movie is almost like you know a Twilight Zone episode directed by Jordan Peele. Like that's what it felt like to me. It's very quirky and stylistic, and uh, you know, if you guys had not told me to expect some crazy twists or not, what is the word? I don't think a twist is the word, right? Like a revelation, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Just um, like I think I might have when I came to those moments in the movie, been like, what? You know, I might have even checked out. So I think it's it's better going into this movie knowing that it's going to get insane and that uh, you know, go into territory that you might not be expecting. Uh, but I I did very much enjoy it. I you know it is. Another one of those kind of like uh, I felt. I mean, Jacob mentioned it earlier. You know, it, it being a good triple feature with those other films, and I I pretty much agree. Uh, it, you know, it's all about compromising yourself, your 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 voice, uh, the media, the government, the people. You know what everybody. You know, it, it's it's a commentary on uh, the world we're living in, even though this is an alternate uh, reality of sorts. Um, yeah, anyways, I, I would say I would very much recommend go see it. Uh, I don't think it's probably my best of the year thus far, uh, but uh, I would definitely recommend anybody who is interested to go see this film. And um, yeah, that's all I've been watching. Oh, no, I also watched uh, a TV show that I wanted to tell you guys about. I watched the first couple episodes of the show on Netflix called On My Block. Have any of you seen the show yet? No, no. I've never heard of it. <laughs> Okay, uh, it's kind of like um, I think it's created by the guy that that did Awkward. I've never seen that show, but uh, if you know that show, that's uh, I think one of the creators. I'm trying to pull up on IMDb the synopsis so I can read it to you. A coming of age comedy about four bright street savvy uh, friends navigating their way through high school in the gritty inner city of South Central Los Angeles. Uh, so that's basically the synopsis of, of what the show is. It, it's kind of like um, Imagine Freaks and Geeks in South Central LA. That is uh, kind of it. Uh, it um, It's very charming, funny, uh, sometimes stiff writing and amateur performances. It feels very indie. It feels almost like 
uh, something you'd see at Sundance. Um, but it's like I said, it's charming, funny, and compelling. I'm gonna, I'm gonna watch more of it. Uh, it. It's relatable. You know, anybody that's gone to high school can relate to this, even though you never went to high school in, uh, you know, so, uh, South Central LA. Uh, but I would highly recommend this. It's on Netflix now. I think they're they're doing a second se- season. It's a 30 minute comedy, and it's called On My Block. Uh, but let's move on to um, Ben. Ben, what have you been watching? Uh, I watched The Godfather. Uh, all three Godfather movies are on Netflix right now, and I haven't seen The Godfather. I have actually never seen Godfather Part 3, but I've not seen the first two Godfather movies in, I don't know, 15 or 20 years or something like that. So I, I was very young, um, and I just thought it was time to you know revisit these movies and, and uh, sort of judge them uh, with, <laughs> with my critical faculties being what they are now, I guess. Um, and basically just see if they live up to all the hype. And it, I mean, the, the first one is the only one that I've had a chance to revisit so far. And it certainly does. It's a, it's a great movie. I, at the risk of just, or I guess instead of just praising a movie that is universally praised, I want to, I want to take this opportunity to throw out one criticism of the Godfather that I noticed when I was watching it. And that is that I don't really think the movie does a very good job of um, portraying the passage of time. There, there were multiple times when I was watching the film where I was like, how much time has gone by between the last scene and the scene that I'm in right now? It, it is like almost impenetrable at certain points. Like, has this been a day, a week? Have years gone by here? What is happening here? So that's something that that sort of struck me um, that I, I don't I don't tend to have that issue with movies. But this one, um, it, it just like that was not a priority for it. It did not care at all about establishing a full, you know, an easily followable timeline for you. Um, so I, I would be interested if uh, if anybody else has had that issue or if I'm just, um, you know, out here on a <laughs> on an island with that one. Uh, and then, why do you um, hate The Godfather, Ben? Why do you why do you hate the greatest <laughs> film of all time? <laughs> yeah, I figure I'll probably get a lot of those kinds of messages. So no, um, I, I can definitely feel that. You know, it's been a few years since seeing this, but I kind of got that feeling when I was watching it. It almost feels like a novel. I mean, it is based on a novel, right? So I uh, and yes. I feel like in books sometimes you don't kind of get that uh, you know that information of how much time has passed uh, from chapter to chapter. Yeah, that's true. Um, but yeah, I'd be interested. Maybe people can write in and, and let us know if uh, if any of the listeners have experienced that same uh, criticism as well. But um, the only other thing really that I've been checking out is uh, HBO's Sharp Objects, which we talked about last week. Um, and uh, it, there are only two episodes in, so it's hard to really you know get too <laughs> too far into what the show is actually about. But it stars Amy Adams, and she's really great in the show. Uh, Chris Messina, who um, I primarily know from his work on the Mindy Project, uh, is is pretty solid in the show as well um it's everything that ht said it was last week this sort of uh you know sweaty um trip through this like gothic murder mystery kind of thing um and it's uh yeah it's it's very it's not an enjoyable show i think but it's uh it's a show that definitely has a mood and i am uh, appreciative of the uh efforts it goes to to really like incorporate to to blanket the entire show in that same mood uh even the editing which i think we were talking about and there seemed to be some division if i recall correctly about whether or not people liked the um the quick flashes of amy adams characters memories and you can mark me in the in the category of people who do appreciate the the show's use of editing in that way i i am the lone person who i was fine with it when it was longer than just like quick like you know one second flashes when it was like 
you know, a 10 second scene or something like mm-hmm. that. I was more on board. It's just the 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 flashes of images almost. I, I love it. I mean, I'm just going to defend it again because yeah. after watching the, the se- second episode, it really struck me how well it puts you in her perspective and how hazy and surreal it is. So just um, push, coming in to say that. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and I, I really like the way that it sort of um, combines the uh, her character's memories with her present. Like, she's maybe walking up the steps of her parents' house, and she's remembering when she did the same thing as a kid, and then the camera actually cuts back to a wide shot of herself and her sister as a, as children and the adult Amy Adams going up the stairs at the same time. So it's this, this sort of interesting way that um, that the show is like uh, examining her character's memories um, and they do it through editing and cinematography and, and just the, the placement and the blocking and everything. I just thought it, it, it was really well done. So uh, that's Sharp object, Objects. It's on uh, HBO on Sunday nights. Yeah, I was at Disneyland all day yesterday, so I have not got to see. Uh, I have not gotten to see the second episode of the show yet. So maybe I will be sold more on these uh, flashes. Uh, but while Ben and I were both watching the new Mission Impossible Impossible movie, uh, Y Tran Bui has been rewatching, or she went back and rewatched. I think what most people agree to be the worst installment <laughs> in the franchise. Uh, uh- Sorry, it was just really funny because he said my full name for a second and I was like, wow, that was un- unusual. But yes, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I watched, um, I was started my Mission Impossible marathon because I got insanely jealous of everyone who went to see the fallout screening. And I was just like, okay, I was just like, okay, you know what? I'm just going to watch all the Mission Impossibles and who cares about the rest of you? So I was rewatching um, the first one and then I got to the second one, which I'd never seen before, Mission Impossible 2, directed by John Woo. And you know what? I actually really enjoyed it. It was ridiculous in all the best ways. And in the most, in the end, it's just, you get a really fun, really bonkers John Woo movie out of it, which I think is the, the magic of the Mission, the Mission Impossible franchise is that each of the directors who are kind of auteurs in their own right give their own spin to each of the movies. And Mission Impossible 2 is John Woo in the most John Woo way, uh, especially with, you know, the multiple dove and pigeon scenes, <laughs> uh, the dramatic flares, the moody Spanish guitar, the uh, flying death hug that Tom Cruise uses to attack the bad guy, which is like my favorite <laughs> part of the movie. And um, I also really like the fact that it was remaking, like, it was basically a shot-for-shot remake of Notorious, which is my favorite Hitchcock movie, and was something that it wasn't even um, subtle about. There's a scene, like, the horse race scene, it was just like, I was like, oh, wow, this is exactly like Notorious, and they're not even being um, subtle, they're being very uh, obvious about it. So I I really enjoyed that, and um, uh, I did think... Andy Newton was a little underused and I felt a little bit uh, sad about that. But otherwise it was fun. It had Tom Cruise double wielding guns and like um, running and just running with pigeons and everything. So it was it's a good time. <laughs> you know, your point about the, this series being one where filmmakers could come in and do their own thing and bring their own style and vision to it is one of my biggest or my only disappointment I think about the new Mission Impossible that now we are ha- we're having two films by uh 
the quarry. Uh, so we're basically getting the same vision for two films in a mm-hmm. row. And uh, one of my one of the things I I just love about the series is how you know crazy in tone it can get from one installment to the next. Uh, so as much as I love this latest installment, I, I kind of hope that you know they have some. Uh, you know, someone crazy come in for the next one and not just be, uh, you know, not turn into a film series by this particular filmmaker. Uh, but uh, wh- what else have you been watching, HD? So after I was unable to see Leave No Trace last week, I finally got to watch it and I really loved it. It's in now, now that I've seen it, I might actually go to the top of to. It will be on my top 10 2018 so far list if I had published it now. But uh, it's directed by Deborah Granick, and uh, it's her first movie since uh, Winter's Bone. And it's in that similar sort of slow burn, moody, uh, subtle style that she presented in Winter's Bone. But it's a lot more intimate, I think, because it it portrays this really codependent but, um, but touching uh, – family portrait of this father played by Ben Foster who is suffering from PTSD from being a war veteran and his daughter who basically shoulders his burdens and lives his life based on like wanting to do the best by him and it's this really beautiful uh, stirring film that really touched me and I think uh, is is a contender for one of the best films of the year. And uh, I would like to say that I'm really happy that some of the best films this year have been directed by women, uh, Deborah Granick, Lynn Ramsey, and Jennifer Fox, who directed The Tale. And I I really, I, sh- I would encourage you to see Leave No Trace because it's a great film, regardless of whether it's directed by women or not. And uh, a quieter one compared to some of the more flashy, good movies that we've had this year. Very cool. And that's not uh, – you've also seen something else this weekend as well. Yeah. So like, last week I um, talked about how I first started My Hero Academia, which is this really popular anime. And I hadn't had much uh, to say about it because I'd only been a couple episodes in. But now I can officially call myself a My Hero Academia fan because I was kind of mildly interested in it while I was watching it. And then suddenly I found myself to be 21 episodes in. I was like, oh. I guess I'm a fan now and it's a it's a really fun series and I realize that the power the the appeal of it and why it's so uh, popular and great is that it's more about the ensemble cast of characters rather than the main character who is uh, this is like a very typical protagonist who's like has who suddenly is burdened with this great power and um, it's it's a really fun goofy uh, sort of Harry Potter meets X-Men series. I think I talked about that before too, but it definitely leans more into like the the shonen anime elements. So shonen anime is the genre uh, for action animes that are like that are um, geared towards young boys and it's something that you see a lot with like Naruto or Dragon Ball Z and you can see a lot of that narrative structure uh, be uh, repeated in um, My Hero Academia, but because there's like this strange sort of homage to American comic books and American superheroes, it is this really interesting melding and melting pot of Eastern and Western culture. And it's a really fun to watch. And I, I enjoy it a lot. I, I recommend it. It's, it's definitely a lot goofier than some superhero uh, stories that you might be used to, but it's just so fun and wacky. And the supporting characters are also great. Well, very cool. Chris... While you haven't been traveling, you've been watching a bunch of things. What have you been watching? 
Uh, yeah, so one of the things I love about Canada is Canadian Netflix, which has different titles than uh, American Netflix. So while I was in Canada for the set visit, uh, I noticed that the Canadian Netflix had a walk among the tombstones on it, which is Wait, this, uh, so when you're in Canada, you just use your same Netflix password? Yeah, it just, it's, it's just automatic. It automatically knows you're in Canada. You can't beat the system, Peter. They just know <laughs> you're there. So well, you could get a VPN and like change your your location. All right, look, I'm not I'm not that committed to hacking Netflix, but um, so <laughs> A Walk Among the Tombstones was this uh, somewhat recent movie with Liam Neeson, and I never saw it in theaters, and it got kind of mixed reviews. But you know, it was late at night, I had nothing to do, I decided to watch it, and it's actually surprisingly good. It's based on this uh, Lawrence Block mystery novel. And uh, David Harbour is in it, and he plays this incredibly creepy serial killer. Like, this is, like, the creepiest performance I've ever seen him give. And it, it was it's, like, such a far cry from his performance on Stranger Things. And Liam Neeson is really good. And I don't know. It's a, it's a very good movie. So if you're in Canada, feel free to watch this on Netflix. If you're in America, I guess you're out of luck. You can pay for it somewhere. Um, and then, uh, by the way, I, I love that we think of Netflix as if we're not paying for something that we're, we're just getting those movies for free, but we are in fact paying for Netflix. Look, let me, let me live in my delusion where it's, uh, it's free. The, um, invi- the, the money is invisible, Peter. So it doesn't exist. Yes, exactly. I, I'm not paying attention to it. It's just gone. It's out there. Um, uh, I also got uh, Shout Factory's import Scream Factory, who puts out horror movies. They're they're releasing John Carpenter's In the Mouth of Madness on a new Blu-ray, and I, I got an advanced copy of that, and I watched it for you know probably the one hundredth time, and it's it's great. It's just as good now as it was when I first saw it many years ago. And you've been and, revisiting The Dark Knight, and it's the tenth anniversary. Yes, it's the 10th anniversary of The Dark Knight, and uh, I have a piece up on Slash Film right now that you know looks back at the legacy of the film, not just you know the film itself, but uh, the the sort of uh, hysteria that surrounded its release. And yeah, that that's a uh, you know that movie holds up. I don't know what else I can say about that movie at this point. Um, well, can, can, it, can you give us a bit of a peek into your piece? Like, how has this film changed uh, cinema today? I mean, it, it, it's it's had, I think, uh, more negative effects than positive, unfortunately. Even though I think the film is great, I feel like the reaction to it ended up sort of backfiring in a lot of ways because after it came out, almost every studio was jumping to make, you know, quote-unquote grounded superhero movies, and they didn't really understand what made Nolan's film work so well, because even though it's a grounded film, it's also very entertaining. Like he doesn't skimp on, you know, the comic book action. And I feel like a lot of people didn't pick up on that. They just thought they had to make like moody, gritty superhero movies. And that all sort of just backfired. And also the, the fan reaction was very strange. Um, you know, I, I say in the piece, you know, toxic fandom is nothing new. And, you know, even with the Batman franchise, there was always toxic fandom, but it was, it was usually directed at the creators, you know, you know, Joel Schumacher got, you know, attacked for making Batman and Robin, you know, stuff like that. But this, this was a, a, a toxic fandom that turned on critics where anyone who dared to give the dark Knight a less than positive review and not even negative, just like a mixed review was considered this like 
enemy of the people. I mean, there were critics literally getting death threats for not giving this film a perfect review. And it was all almost like this, this mania set in where comic book fans needed this film to be legitimate, especially in the wake of the Jill Schumacher films. They needed Christopher Nolan to prove that, you know, comic book movies could be more than kid stuff. And some people felt that any critic who said otherwise was, was somehow halting that progress. And it's a ridiculous way to look at things, but that's the way it happened. And uh, unfortunately that hasn't gone away. You know, anytime, you know, critics give comic book movies a negative review now, especially DC films, they're instantly labeled as, you know, like in the pocket of Disney or, you know, it, it's this like crazy subset of fandom that sort of just grew out of their reaction to this movie. And it's kind of a bummer because, you know, when you remove all this negative stuff, it's a great movie. It just sort of had this weird effect on you know, film culture as we know it. For sure. And I'll link uh, your article, We Burn the Forest Down, The Dark Knight, 10 years later in the show notes. You can find it on SlashFilm.com. Jacob, what have you been watching? Uh, well, first of all, I just want to say that uh, Chris is kicking off an entire week of Dark Knight coverage on the site. So if you want to read uh, about Dark Knight being explored from every angle, we have a couple posts going up throughout the rest of the week. Uh, one, At least one every day up through Friday. So definitely check out SlashFilm.com if you want to explore the dark night 10 years later from like so many different fun angles, both serious like Chris did. And there's a few silly fun ones as well, but yeah, I watched something very different than the dark night that also came out 10 years ago this month. And that was a uh, mama Mia, the uh, film adaptation of the musical set to the songs of ABBA. And, and, and you're watching this in preparation because you're so excited about the sequel that is coming out <laughs> this summer. Uh, my wife is, which is why we watched this one and it's, it's streaming on Netflix and it's a, it's an agreeable thing. I watched it and was not bored. I was I was uh, enchanted by it at times. But it is by no means a traditionally good movie. It feels like it was made up as it went along. I know it's based on a, on a musical, but on screen, it feels like everybody got together on the day of the set and said, okay, what happens to this scene? And they choreographed everything 10 minutes before they started rolling cameras. It has this sort of community theater, let's put on a show vibe, but it has Meryl Streep in it. So it has all these recognizable movie stars, but it has the tone of the kind of thing that you go see because your friend's in it and you want to support them. And I found that strangely endearing and really fun to watch, uh, even when it's really embarrassing. Like, I described it to my wife as the anti-cool. It's If, if, if there's concept <laughs> of cool, uh, Mamma Mia is the anti-cool. And, and like just watching Pierce Brosnan moan his way through SOS and, and it appears Brosnan's voice is like a dog dying and I'm just like sitting there watching it through my through closed hands because I was so <laughs> embarrassed for Pierce Brosnan but that's part of the fun is you're watching Pierce Brosnan sing ABBA and that's fun even though he's terrible uh, and it, I, I get why people would hate this but I also get why people would love it and talking to my wife afterward I, I pitched her the concept of what if Peyton Reed had directed this in the same style he directed uh, Down With Love in the in sort of a technicolor, intentionally artificial throwback style instead of this more naturalistic style that this film is made in? And I think that would have been the key to making Mamma Mia into an actual good movie is if they had embraced artificiality and had said, let's be as fake as possible in every way possible. And I think that would have made it actually good. But as it is now, it's this weird, strange, genuinely lovable pile of craziness that i i'm not gonna recommend to everybody but i had a good time with it and, and but it has me dragging the sequel because i don't think i could stand more of this i think this is enough mamma mia wait so explain this to me the sequel is the same songs but a new story 
it's a prequel um, for the most part, and they don't say this out like outright, but the trailers make it pretty clear that the bulk of the movie is set thirty or twenty years earlier, and all the original cast members are back for cameos more or less. <laughs> and but yeah, it seems to be recycling a lot of the same ABBA songs uh, because uh, ABBA. I love ABBA, but there are only so many yeah. great ABBA songs. But ha- has a musical ever done that where they've had a sequel or a prequel and it's like the same songs? I don't think so, but there's also only been one ABBA jukebox musical, so <laughs> I, I don't know. All I know is that uh, I can't imagine the sequel being good, because I think this is a lightning struck once in a bizarre uh, science experiment gone right, and I think trying to replicate that without the movie stars back in full force is a bad choice. Yeah. What else have you been watching? Was that your cat? Oh, that was my cat, Fred. Hi, yeah. Fred. Hi! <laughs> okay, what, what else have you been watching, Jacob? Uh, a movie I liked... Um, about as much for different reasons uh, was The Devil's Doorway, a new IFC Midnight release. It's available for rent on Amazon, iTunes, VOD, whatever service you prefer. And this is another movie that um, I watched with my wife because in the same way that Mamma Mia is a My Wife movie, uh, Devil's Doorway is very much a My Wife movie. She loves um, found footage horror movies. She loves uh, horror movies about Catholicism. She loves horror movies about haunted houses and demons. And this is all of those. It's a uh, Irish film. And... It is a uh, found footage movie set in the 60s. So the whole thing is shot in 4-3. It has a uh, sort of uh, shaky sound and graininess to it. It's about two priests who investigate uh, miracles at a uh, uh, at a nunnery where uh, women are being made uh, – women who are – the Catholic Church wants hidden away. Women who are pregnant, women who are prostitutes, women who have been um, labeled deviants for every reason by the church are working in a laundry – and it turns out that the miracles may have a satanic meaning behind them. Uh, cue the priests running and screaming and dropping their camera a lot. And uh, it's 76 minutes long. It's no masterpiece. It's not great. But if you like found footage, if you like demons, if you like jump scares, if you like um, all those things, if you like Catholicism-fueled uh, horror movies, which in, in my household is just the top-notch religious horror, uh, then it's a lot of fun and worth a $5 rental. But uh, speaking of horror movies that are, aren't going to cost you five bucks to rent, The Babysitter, uh, streaming on Netflix, I watched this and I was a little disappointed by it. I think it has a really strong screenplay. Like what, looking at the situations on in the film, looking at the dialogue, I feel like on paper this was a really good screenplay. But I think that Mick G, the director of Charlie's Angels and Terminator Salvation, was the wrong choice for this because he never lets the material speak for itself. He's always adding visual quirks and stylistic choices that do not serve the story. They distract and make you wonder, why am I looking at this shot? Why is it being shot this way? As opposed to letting these situations speak for themselves. The movie is about a 12-year-old kid who learns that his babysitter is the leader of a satanic cult uh, who's planning bad things in his house. And it's at times very funny and at times um, really shocking. And I kept on thinking the entire time I was watching it, this would be better served by a different filmmaker. And I tweeted that it would be a great uh, Joe Lynch movie, Joe Lynch, director of Mayhem. And interestingly, Joe Lynch responded on Twitter saying uh, that he almost made it. So uh, there's an alternate universe out there where the babysitter is like a really great horror comedy. And right now it's a missed opportunity. Joe Lynch, uh, a listener to the podcast, so he might be listening uh, to this right now. Yeah, hi, Joe Lynch. I wish you made this movie. Uh, Mayhem's great, by the way. Mayhem is streaming on Shudder, and that's a very violent, very funny, uh, uh, very uh, delicately handled in terms of tone uh, horror movie. Reminds me very much of early Sam Raimi. But yeah, I watch a few other crappy horror movies as well, because uh, my wife and I, we always start off with movies what we want to see, and then get drunk and watch things that we don't want to see. And that includes um, 
uh, Rideshare, a horror movie about a killer Uber driver. It's very bad. And The Sand, and we've got a killer beach. Literally, The Sand murders people. Uh, that was also very bad. And that's all I watched this weekend. Okay, so don't watch those films. Uh, watch, what, The Devil's Doorway? Yeah, yeah watch The Devil's Doorway or <laughs> Mamma Mia, depending on what kind of horror you do want, Pierce Brosnan singing or Satan. Okay, Brad, what have you been watching? Uh, so you would think, uh, since I had strep throat, that I would have been able to watch a lot. But honestly, I just like laid around in bed and slept on and off and just really didn't feel like doing much of anything. So I watched some stuff on and off. I caught up on Big Brother Season 20 and things like that. But the one thing that I did take the time to uh, catch up on from a while back that I had sitting on my DVR forever was uh, Season 2 of Great News, which is an NBC comedy series that has since been canceled. Uh, probably my fault for not watching and just keeping it on my DVR. Um, but yeah, so I finally got around to watching it. I love the first season of Great News. It's it's a, like like Thirty Rock meets the Newsroom, basically. Uh, sort of absurd comedy has a great ensemble cast. Uh, it's created by Tracy Wigfield, who worked on the, the Mindy Project. And I, I'm really bummed that the show got canceled. It's it's really funny. It's not quite as uh, fast paced or as clever as 30 rock but it's still it was still really really funny and i enjoyed it tina fey was on this season uh for in the first two or three episodes and popped up here and there and it's just a lot of fun and i really wish that it would have stuck around somehow or and that or that maybe netflix would have given it you know a chance or something like that um even mark hamill uh said on twitter after it was canceled that he was bummed that the show uh got the axe so if you haven't watched it you know there's only two seasons so uh give it a shot if you uh have it at your disposal and then uh, I also decided to watch The Phantom because it's on Hulu, and <laughs> I am I'm just a sucker for this movie. It's it's not good by any means, but I love watching it. It's so cheesy and goofy and makes no damn sense. And I, I just love how how uh, like just melodramatic all the acting is and like just what a like. The kind of hero that Billy Zane is in this movie is, is such like a, a classic serial hero, and it's it's so ham-fisted and weird. And I just I love every minute of it. Though I mean, Treat Williams as a villain named Xander Drax. Uh, you know, you've got James Remar as this like villainous version of Indiana Jones. Um, the 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 final set piece looks like it takes place like on a stunt show set from Six Flags. <laughs> It's just, it's so goofy, and like, but but I love watching it. Like, I remember seeing it in theaters when I was a kid, and enjoying it. And like, and honest, as an adult, like, I like it for so many different reasons. And it's just because it's it's so bad. And if you haven't listened to the How Did This Get Made episode about the Phantom, do yourself a favor, rewatch the Phantom on Hulu, and then go listen to that episode because it's it's so funny. <laughs> okay, we we've officially hit the longest episode of Slash Film Daily ever. So let's be brief. Uh, from this point forward we're gonna keep on going uh brad at the fair you were at the this this county fair they always have these crazy uh foods like fried foods and stuff what did you eat yeah you know, honestly this year i was kind of disappointed because usually the fair has like at least one new thing that it's like whoa check this out like last year it's like fried butter yeah, last year one of the the popular new things was they had uh, it was basically chicken on a stick, but it was covered uh, in cornflakes, <laughs> and, and it was it was pretty good. But they didn't have anything new this year that I was like, oh man. I, I, I feel like it. last year at my fair everything was like something having to do with uh, those uh, what fiery Cheetos. What is it yeah, called? Yeah, yeah, those that, that stuff's been pretty popular. I actually didn't see anything like that at our fair this year, but you know I had the standard. 
uh, you know, fried Oreos uh, and, and corn dogs and whatnot. But my favorite thing that I got this year is um, there's this one stand. It's a, a, a cattleman stand where they, ha- they have a ribeye burger where it's they have a burger patty, but then they also have a slice of ribeye and they put uh, cheese on it. And it's just it's the meat is so tender and juicy. It was it's so delicious. It's definitely my favorite thing that I had at the fair this year. Very cool. Is that all you've been eating this week? No, I, I did get um, – uh, this is something that I bought last week at uh, a candy outlet store called Lolly and Pops. And it is uh, – it's actually a candy bar that's from the UK, and I saw it because we don't have it here. And it's it's a Milka Chips Ahoy chocolate bar where it has tiny chunks of Chips Ahoy cookies inside the milk chocolate bar. And the United Kingdom seriously just needs to start, like, bringing their candy over here because they have the best chocolate and they have – just, just the, the best combinations of like what they put in their candy bars. It is so good. Like the, the milk chocolate is so smooth and tasty, and like the the cookies add like the the, the perfect crunch to it. And it's just I, I love UK chocolate bars so much. Isn't there like a reason why British and American chocolate tastes different? Like there's a, you know, I don't have the time to go into this right now. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're going long. Uh, okay, let's talk about Ben because uh, he himself went to a specialty soda store over the weekend. Yeah, there's this place called uh, what is it? It's called it's called Galco's Soda Pop Stop, and it's in I think it's in like um, Eagle Rock or like that area of LA. Uh, Highland Park actually is is the the name of the sub city or town or whatever and it's this place that has like 600 different types of sodas for sale so it's a lot of um you know off the wall stuff that you've never really heard of before it's not it's not just like coke and pepsi and whatever it's it's like uh actually i took a picture of a bunch of the flavors that i bought so i'm gonna scroll through my phone really quickly and and read some of them off to you guys uh there's a cherry cola called spider venom and it has this huge like black widow spider looking thing on the on the label there's something called pepper elixir which is by a brand (laughs) called mcfuddy which i've never heard of before and it looks like this old school um you know like something you would almost you would buy in like a red dead redemption video game or something uh so i have no idea what that tastes like i haven't tasted it yet the uh the spider venom is very very cherry it's like it tastes like they went overboard with the grenadine on that thing uh, i bought a bunch of, din- of ginger beer because my wife and i like to drink uh, dark and stormies so there's jamaica's finest hot 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 ginger beer it's like all spicy this all natural spicy uh ginger beer there's one called werewolf that uh, has this all this lore on the back about werewolves and howling at the moon and the, the labels on these things are really what sort of uh grab the eye and then my favorite one that i that i got that i haven't tried yet is called erps original sarsaparilla and it's like the, it has a tagline on it it says after a hard day of gunfighting Nothing beats a real sarsaparilla, <laughs> and it's got this picture of of Wyatt Earp on it. So, uh, yeah, I'm I'm very excited about that. <laughs> yeah, there, there's a local store. Uh, you may have gone to it, Ben. It's in uh, the valley called Rocket Fizz, which also has a good selection of sodas. Maybe not as big as the place you went to, and I always go there and grab like the most like weirdest, like you know, here's pickle flavored soda or what <laughs> to, to just uh, to try it. Um, but uh, it's it's usually never good. Whenever you go for those novelty things, it's usually yeah. it's usually pretty bad. Um, but let's uh, let's move on to our last and final topic. That is what we've been playing. Uh, Jacob, you've been playing some tabletop. What have uh, what have you gotten into? 
I guess more specifically, I've been planning some tabletop. Uh, I've been looking into getting into Arkham Horror, the card game. And for those of you who don't know, the Arkham Horror uh, franchise of games from Fantasy Flight Games is uh, loosely based on the Cthulhu mythos created by writer H.P. Lovecraft. And I'm a big H.P. Lovecraft fan. I've read every single word he's written. He's probably my favorite writer, uh, e- even though you have to grapple with all things that make him a terrible person in real life. But... Uh, and I always have, I always struggle sometimes with some uh, board game and video game takes on his work because his stories and novels are all about uh, the despair of knowing that in the in the universe you mean nothing, and the creatures of of his um, stories are less about um, traditional scares and more about being aware of how small and insignificant you are. And it's very much he writes this existential horror. Whereas his uh, the board games and and uh, based on his work are usually about shoot the monster with a shotgun, uh, so I occasionally have that uh, disconnect where I get frustrated. But the Fantasy Flight's uh, Arkham games, uh, which include the Arkham Horror board game from years ago, uh, Eldritch Horror Mansions of Madness, uh, and now Arkham Horror the Card Game, which is about a year and a half old now, uh, are all really excellent and are the best uh, version of of this type of Lovecraft storytelling. If you are going to play games where you shoot monsters with a shotgun instead of curl up in a ball and feel dread, uh, then this is the way to go. And Arkham Horror is a living card game, which I've mentioned before on the show, where there are uh, new packs coming out uh, every month that continue the game. But unlike uh, Netrunner or the Game of Thrones LCG, uh, this is a co-op game where you and your other uh, other pitiful humans uh, build decks that represent your character and you play against the game itself and against scenarios that come out every month. And you try to survive and stay sane. And uh, since it's a co-op game... You're usually exploring the town or houses. There's monsters and cultists that show up. Yeah, and since the way this game works is the first first cycle of adventures take place in Lovecraft, Massachusetts. And more more other cycles have taken place uh, in, uh, in in jungles, like in these ancient lost temples or in alternate dimensions full of monsters. So it's really hitting all the various different uh, Lovecraft beats. And I, like I said, uh, I bought the core set. I'm learning the game, and I've been organizing my crew. I've been asking friends and family who wants to be part of my ongoing uh, crew, so we can keep the same people playing in the campaign going forward as new packs come out. So I'm really excited. And as somebody who um, already plays all the other H.P. Lovecraft uh, board games, RPGs, and card games, I'm excited to see what this one brings to the table. It's by all accounts really good. And I guess it speaks to the fact that there are so many Lovecraft-themed games that you're You've also been dealing with a uh, Lovecraft game, right, Peter? Yeah, um, and I, I did play the first box set of uh, Arkham Horror, the card game, but uh, it, it is a money pit, Jacob. <laughs> it's just <laughs> like uh, your your Netrunner that you've talked about recently. Like, you know, there's so many expansions. If you want to play with more than two players, you need to get two, uh, you know, packs of the, you know, core set. It's, it, it's and talking about money pits. Uh, Kickstarter, if you're a tabletop fan and you, you like buying board games, Kickstarter is a place where you can spend lots of money. Uh, there is a new game on there this week uh, from Cool Mini or Not. It's called Cthulhu Death May Die, which sounds like a movie made by Rob Cohen or something. Um, and uh, But it is actually uh, made by some uh pretty good heavy hitters. It's designed by a guy named Eric Lang, who designed... Um, uh, Blood Rage, Red uh, Rising Sun, uh, a bunch of great games that are highly acclaimed in the board game space, alongside Rob Davio, who uh, designed uh, Risk Legacy and Pandemic Legacy, uh, some some of literally, you know, on Board Game Geek, the greatest games of all time. 
uh, both of these guys actually. I think both of these guys probably hold like multiple titles in the top, you know, fifteen of all time on Board Game Geek. Uh, so they're reteam uh, they're teaming for this game, which is a miniature game set in the Lovecraft universe, um, a storytelling kind of uh, you know you were there to fight uh, Cthulhu and those kind of like uh, monsters and demons. Something I uh, instantly backed. Uh, you know, they got my hundred dollars. Uh, but uh, have you seen this at all, Jacob? I missed it uh, when I first launched. Looking at it right now, and this is just a checkbox of like yes. everything you you need from a to, to get a, a successful game on Kickstarter. You have Eric Lang, Kulminir Na, and Cthulhu. It's just the the play you're playing, and, they're playing bingo miniatures. with all the things that make money. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I'm bringing this up. This is the last thing we're talking about, but uh, I'm bringing this up because usually when games launch on Kickstarter, they have these stretch goals and they have these additional buys they try to get you to add on like you can in some of these cool mini or not campaigns uh you know even though the game starts at like 80 or 100 bucks you could if you wanted to buy everything that they're offering end up you know spending hundred you know hundreds of dollars more than that uh and i have oftentimes uh been suckered into that and by suckered i i enjoy playing my game so like it's not like i have you know lost out on this money but i wanted to bring this up because this is the first time i've seen this and this is where i draw the line jacob uh this game they have introduced a 150 dollar add-on to this game which is a scenario for this game which basically comes with a miniature that serves as a uh, not just a character, but also the game board for the scenario, and the miniature is two feet tall. I don't know where you'd store this thing. I don't know what you'd do with it, but uh, this is where I draw the line, Jacob. I'm not I'm not spending hundred and fifty dollars on a two foot tall plastic miniature. Yeah, that, that's too much. And I'm looking at this Kickstarter right now, and. I may back this. $100 for the base game is pretty much what, you, what you're going to get at retail. But for a lot of the stuff it comes with, I don't know, I, I always think of what um, uh, board game critic uh, and prominent YouTuber Tom Vassell always says about Kickstarter, which is if a game is truly great, uh, then it will live beyond Kickstarter and be available on shelves for years to come. Yeah, but here's uh, the problem with that. The problem with that is that you get so many Kickstarter exclusive minis that come with the campaign if you back it now, which you do we not... need those? Do we need those? The answer is usually no. Probably not. <laughs> but they are they are very pretty. I'm looking looking at Coolman or not or Simon as they're now called does really incredible work. Their games look amazing, and if you are a mini collector, like if you are a person who, who like likes to have a large library of minis for use beyond the board game, then yeah, I, I understand it entirely. But looking at this right now, for just the base game, I don't think I need anything beyond the $100 pledge. Jacob, I just shared in the Slack channel a picture of this miniature, which is this big Cthulhu-like creature. If you can see, I'll I'll put this link in the show notes. There's a mini, like the size of a normal mini is like, what, like an inch tall, inch and a half tall? You can see the mini being dwarfed by this gigantic creature. It's, It's insane. Well, my problem with this, if you're going to go this big, you might as well make it even more accurate. I think Cthulhu is bigger than that. So why don't you just make it twice as big and charge twice as much, Peter? Go go full accurate. Okay. I think we have we have officially reached the end of this podcast. This is this is the longest podcast we've ever done on Daily. This is, you know, we've done a year, so maybe it's worth it. I don't know. Uh, but uh, we were headed to Comic-Con. We'll be talking about that later this week. And uh, we don't have the time to say all the goodbyes from every everybody that was on this podcast. But you can find more of this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. And uh, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, send them to Peter 
Twitter at SlashFilm.com. And uh, if we can, we'll read some of them on the air. Please rate and read this podcast on iTunes. Tell your friends. Spread the word. We'll see you tomorrow.